Welcome back to Legally Empowered. I'm your host, Sahara Pines, and I'm so excited to bring this podcast to you. As an attorney and former business owner myself, I'm passionate about drawing on my own experience and insight to set my female clients up for success. I know my guest today feels the same. Today, I'm thrilled to welcome Kirsten White to Legally Empowered. Kirsten serves as a strategic advisor to employers on a range of labor and employment issues with a particular focus on collective bargaining and matters arising under the National Labor Relations Act and the Railway Labor Act. Her clients rely on her for pragmatic, goal-oriented labor counseling, including with respect to managing and mitigating strikes and other labor disputes, union organizing campaigns, corporate transactions, and all other aspects of labor management relations and collective bargaining agreement administration. Kirsten also advises clients on compliance with a range of employment laws and counsels executive decision makers on the management and remediation of high-stakes workplace issues. From 2009 to 2013, Kirsten served as policy director to then Second Lady Dr. Jill Biden in the office of the Vice President of the United States. Wow, what a resume. Welcome, Kirsten. So happy to have you. Well, thank you for having me. As you know, I'm a big fan of the podcast, and I'm thrilled to be joining you. Thank you so much. Um, I think it's going to be a great discussion today. Uh, When people hear the term labor law, I think they tune out and think that it just doesn't apply to them because they're a non-unionized workplace. So tell me why is that a mistake? Well, it's a it's a great question and a little bit of a sad but true observation for me as um, a genuine labor law dork, which um, I know sounds 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 truly like it's spoken from the mouth of a lawyer, but I do find the whole area really fascinating, as odd as that might sound. But but yeah, um, it, it's a pretty broad misconception that labor, quote, labor law, um, and specifically the National Labor Relations Act, only relates to or applies to employers that have union-represented workforces. But, but the reality is quite the opposite. Um, the NLRA actually applies to all private sector employers with, you know, some limited exceptions that aren't really relevant um, for today's conversation, but that means everybody needs to comply uh, with the National Labor Relations Act, whether or not their employees are union members. Um, And, you know, I think what's really interesting about this time around labor law um, is that labor, federal labor policy really swings on a pendulum and is very heavily um, sort of influenced uh, by politics and, and sort of who the occupant of the White House is, because that person mm. um, is appointing, uh, you know, the, the NLRB majority. Um, and so as depending on the occupant of the White House, you know, we, there typically is four or eight years of a, um, you know, a, a series of union and employee friendly decisions or very management friendly decisions. So as we talk today, I may refer to the uh, Biden era NLRB or the Trump board. Um, and that really is just to signal kind of those moments in time where there's been um, a you know significant period of either employee friendly, union friendly or uh, management friendly uh, decisions. And, and we now are in a place right where we have a new uh, Biden appointed majority on the board. So I'll be talking a little bit about how that's gonna uh, affect uh, upcoming changes to federal labor policy. Sure. I wanted to point that out. 
So um, that's great, great context. And tell me just in layman's terms, what is the NLRA? What does it cover in a nutshell? <laughs> we don't have that much time today. And, yeah. the, N and the NLRB, uh, National Labor Relations Board, and sort of what their role is in the government. Sure. So in, I think as it, in its simplest uh, explanation, um, the NLRA really it grants employees uh, one basic fundamental right. I think it, it can be boiled down to um, you know, allowing employees and, and uh, granting employees the right to engage in what's called protected concerted activity. Uh, this means that, you know, this is conduct that, you know, if an employee engages in protected concerted activity, their employer is prohibited from taking adverse employment action, uh, typically a discharge or discipline um, against that employee for having engaged in protected concerted activity. So what are we talking about when we talk about protected concerted activity? It's conduct that really has two key elements. Uh, first, it's concerted. So that means that it's carried out by more than one employee or even by an individual employee if, um, if the employee is acting on behalf of more than one employee. Um, and second- mm, We'll come if, back to that. Yeah, <laughs> we will. I know that was, that was a little bit jumbled, but you know, it, it's important to keep in mind that really this isn't, this isn't conduct. The whole concept of employees forming and joining a union is, is that they can work together, right? They join together and form a collective voice to bargain with their employer or to advocate for improved working conditions. And the idea of it being concerted is really around um, making sure, you know, as a key element, it has to be focused on or the goal of the conduct has to be to advocate for improved group working conditions. So it's an important element, and I, I think I described it a little bit too legalistic, but it really is just about, you know, conduct that is about and aimed at improving group employee working conditions. And again, that's the, that's the second element there. The reason it's protected is because of that aim. So it's got to be aimed at improving group working conditions as opposed to sort of an individual gripe kind of situation or a personality conflict between an individual and employee and an individual supervisor. We're really talking about uh, employee conduct that is, 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 is aimed at sort of taking a collective voice to change and improve uh, working conditions for multiple employees. Super helpful. And so is it fair to say then that the National Labor Relations Board, the NLRB, is the entity, the government appointed entity that enforces this law. Yep, the NLRB is, just as you said, the federal agency that administers and enforces the National Labor Relations Act. There's a five-member board that's really responsible for, you know, what I talked about a few minutes ago, changing precedent and making, you know, uh, you know, rules or changing the context or the scope of labor policy. Um, the the five-member board sort of issues decisions that that decide those issues, and then there are a number of regional offices around the country that investigate um, alleged violations of the National Labor Relations Act, primarily, um, you know, charged or or filed by either an employee or a union against an employer. And, you know, when we talk about protected concerted activity, and I think one of the reasons, you know, unions come to mind is because forming and joining a labor union really is maybe the most obvious example of protected concerted mm -hmm. activity, but there are countless other types of uh, protected concerted activity, I mean, activity that just happens in every workplace on a daily basis, whether it's a union or non-union workplace. 
Right. And so I think that is one of sort of the major misnomers in labor law, which is that it is just there to protect union organizing. And there's just so much more. Right. And I think if we think about some of the examples that are are maybe the most common types of protected concerted activity, um, some of those would include, you know, discussions amongst employees in the workplace um, about uh, wages, you know, frank discussions amongst two or more employees about their salaries, their benefits, their working conditions. Um, those conversations may include criticisms of the employee's employer or specific managers or supervisors um, to the extent they're complaining about how those people manage working conditions. Um, it can also manifest as just employees very directly complaining to their supervisor about various things like, for example, um, how overtime opportunities arise, uh, who gets the first crack when there is an overtime opportunity, schedule changes, uh, again, uh, you know, shift premiums, any of those kind of day-to-day -day working conditions a direct complaint from uh, an employee complaining on behalf of, you know, him or herself and at least one other or, you know, a couple of employees coming and complaining. Um, the other things we're, we see quite often, and in fact, we've seen a lot more of these examples um, over the past couple of years around COVID are, you know, um, when employees may circulate a petition uh, amongst uh, a workforce to get signatures to advocate for something, maybe a, um, an improved benefit, mm -hmm. or, or certainly with respect to COVID, um, things like paid COVID leave or uh, who's an essential employee or safer working conditions generally. Um, and sometimes we've seen in, in sort of more urgent cases, uh, protected concerted activity manifest in workplaces uh, during the pandemic, uh, where it's really just been a, you know, a, a number of employees participating in a concerted refusal to work because they believe their working conditions are unsafe. And so we, you know, the pandemic certainly has introduced a whole new set of circumstances for non-union employers that are having to sort of grapple with maybe protected concerted uh, questions of protected concerted activity around health and safety for the first time. And what it. I mean, this, what we're talking about here is really broad. Any complaints about wages, working conditions, mm -hmm. benefits, criticisms about your supervisor, um, generalized working conditions. I had a client, uh, non-union workplace, sort of millennial workforce that uh, walked out over the summer uh, refused to work because of the way they felt the company was handling Black Lives Matter. And we we sort of had to figure out, well, is that covered as this protected concerted activity? Yeah, that's a really interesting recent uh, example. Another example that I think trips up a lot of employers um, typically employers, and, and you and I know this because of our, our you know, employment counseling practices, um, that typically we would advise employers that um, they don't need to permit or allow employees to talk about politics in the workplace. Um, there mm -hmm. is an element of political discussion that can be protected. Um, for example, I, um, I live in Boston, and uh, a couple years ago, there was a, a ballot question, uh, question one, and there were signs all over the state before, just before leading up to uh, election day. Um, and the question was about establishing staffing ratios for nurses in hospitals. Um, so, you know, because that was an issue that directly relates to working conditions for a, a huge number of healthcare workers in the state, 
Um, for those employers, that's a political question and a political discussion, but because it directly related um, to working conditions for people in the healthcare industry, that too is a protected concerted activity under the NLRA. So depending on where we are at any moment, right, in, in time, whether it's a cultural moment or a political moment, um, definitely new issues around sort of assessing and evaluating what's protected uh, under the NLRA becomes a new issue. So just to clarify for me, um, this is so changeable because the this is not like the Supreme Court, uh, the NLRB, where there's no lifetime appointments and um, there's not necessarily the same stare decisis or, you know, we're sort of all following the Supreme Court, this, this term with all these important cases, but the same idea that you have to stick to precedent, is that is that correct? You're, you're exactly right. And that's one of the reasons this is such an interesting time for labor practitioners, because as I mentioned, right, whether a series of board or labor policy decisions leans union friendly or management friendly really can change depending on the board majority, right, every four or eight years. Um, the definition of protected concerted activity is always going to be the same, right? It's going to have those two elements. But with a new, you know, Biden era board majority, which is, you know, uh, President Biden has made no secret of his um, his goal, right? His pledge to be the most union friendly uh, president in in American history, and and his uh, appointments to the board certainly indicate uh, what we anticipate to be an interpretation of protected concerted activity that's much broader than the one that we've gotten from the Trump era board over the past four years or so. So we're going to, I think, start to see uh, interpretations of workplace conduct um, that expands really more and more types of conduct mm -hmm. fitting into this interpretation under a Biden era uh, a board majority of what is protected concerted activity. Um, and it, it shrinks and narrows, right? And so, um, you know, that definition is always going to be those two, two key elements, but the interpretation of what falls within that definition changes quite a bit. And we certainly expect um, this board uh, to be doing a lot of that. And I think employers are really going to see that um, because there'll be more scrutiny of discipline decisions in the workplace, right? And more challenges, um, to, you know, claims saying that a discipline decision or a termination was retaliatory when in fact the employee was engaged in protected concerted activity. And again, we're gonna have a larger kind of mm -hmm. group of conduct that'll fit into that definition. So this is really an area that as the uh, political times change that employers need to keep on their radar. Um, can we talk a little bit about things that happen outside of the workplace? Yeah. Uh, there's a lot of social media components I see coming up in my practice anyway. Um, the uh, marches, the protests, mm -hmm. how does that all factor into protected concerted activity um, in the current climate? So great question, especially as you mentioned, you know, um, the evolving sort of demographics of the current workforce and technology, um, social media, uh, the prevalence of social media, and, and how employees and coworkers interact with one another outside the workplace. Um, so other things that would be considered protected concerted activity um, include things like employees totally outside the workplace going 
to the media and, and talking, uh, complaining about their employer, um, going to the, the government or to politicians um, to make those same complaints as long as, again, it's protected and concerted. But the biggest area that's, you know, I think invited a whole new space um, and, and environment for employees to engage in protected conduct is social media. And, you know, this, this new board has introduced or gone back to an idea of there being um, employee conduct that's inherently protected. So, you know, what, what something that might fall into that category uh, and, and might fit the definition of concerted is a single employee's Facebook post that complains okay. about the employer and says, you know, we want better X or Y benefit and a coworker simply hits the like button under the post. Suddenly, that's it, it, it's concerted, right? Because it's two employees having a much, you know, a more futuristic conversation and concerted sort of engagement. Um, I think well beyond what uh, was ever initially intended uh, when the NLRA was was uh, enacted almost a hundred years ago. But it's probably the sure. largest area where we're really having to grapple with issues in this new space. Have you seen a difference whether the post was publicly available versus privately available yes. only to their quote friends or followers or whatever it is? So that, that raises a couple of interesting NLRA issues. First of all, yes, if it's publicly available um, or if if it if even if it's not publicly available but private to the extent that only their quote unquote friends or Facebook friends mm -hmm. can access the content um, if they have a manager or supervisor who is a friend, right? Who can, who can, you know, who accesses the content or a coworker who accesses the content. It doesn't take much more, right? For an upper level manager to become aware um, of, of the, the post. And, and if it has some problematic or troubling language in it also, um, you know, chances are pretty good that, that an employer is going to want to take some action, especially if, you know, there's egregious language or, you know, defamatory comments um, about coworkers or supervisors. Um, what's interesting is if it's a truly closed group, um, really, you know, the NLRA prohibits employers from conducting what they call surveillance of protected concerted activity engaged in by employees. So, you know, employers have to be careful if they become aware of, of a post like this, but they don't naturally have access. Um, you also run the risk of, you know, if demonstrating that you are aware of it also could signal some unlawful surveillance of employee protected conduct. So, uh, so again, you know, I think it takes very little for uh, these days for a social media post to become more broadly available. Um, so employers learn about it pretty quickly, but you gotta be careful if there's no kind of managerial uh, access um, that you're not kind of addressing something posted online that's protected um, because that again is unlawful. Oh, so that's really interesting. So if let's say, another employee screenshots it and sends it to a manager, you're saying that it would be unlawful surveillance for somebody, the manager or somebody to create, let's say, an account to then go follow the conversation. Right. So interestingly, so to the first part of your comment, the, your uh, scenario, if another employee who naturally can access that content proactively sends it to the employer, that's not surveillance, right? Someone has provided it. So, you know, they could take action based only on what they were provided by another employee who could naturally access the content. But you're absolutely right that, and this arises quite often in 
uh, the context of union organizing campaigns, right? So an employer becomes aware that there's an effort to, to organize a, a union organizing effort amongst its employees and to kind of find out uh, what, the, what the messaging is between the union and the employees. You know, it could be tempting to, to, to try to, you know, see what's happening on an employee Facebook group. Are they talking about their union meetings? Are they discussing, you know, strategically, um, you know, their strategy for, for organizing and an election and things like that? Those, in those contexts, um, it's very, very risky. And you certainly never want to create some kind of, um, you know, dummy sort of email account as, a, as an employer and, and, and do that kind of surveillance, right? That is clearly unlawful. Okay, so walk me through like a termination or a disciplinary action and how a non-unionized workforce is going to assess this. Um, they see something, maybe they think it's adverse to the company's values, or maybe they think it's a violation of uh, the company harassment policy or otherwise offensive social media posts. Yep. What, is, what does the company do then? What, what does that analysis look like? Yeah, so so let's take that example. It's a social media post, and, and we saw a number of these cases arise under the Obama-era board, kind of in, in the 2014 to 2016 era, um, where employees would be naturally, like many do, you know, complaining about something that had happened at work, mm -hmm. um, and, and bringing in, you know, as part of that discussion, using some some really inappropriate language. And in fact, there were a couple of cases where um, the, the, the language really was um, inappropriate enough that if it hadn't been accompanied by other comments uh, aimed at improving group working conditions, it certainly could be terminable. That It was that offensive. Um, for example, in a, in a case called Pier 60 um, in 2015, this arose in the context of a union organizing drive. So there was not yet a union that was the formal bargaining agent, but there were there was an effort to formally organize. Um, and, and there were some um, issues that happened with a particular supervisor in the workplace. Um, an employee went home and he posted, you know, a really vulgar um, and profanity-laced post on his Facebook that included, you know, calling his supervisor a, a number of profane names and, you know, accusing mm. him of not knowing how to talk to people, being a bad and a bad, you know, supervisor and all of those things, calling him a loser. And then at the end of this uh, Facebook post, it said, vote yes for the union with like five exclamation points. <laughs> and believe it or not, the, the employer got wind of it. Again, it was a public facing post. So it wasn't, there was no issue around surveillance. It, it, it honestly came to the employer in a lawful way. And they saw this just very sort of vulgar attack at one of its supervisors and terminated the employee. The employee filed a charge, challenged it as you know, an improper and unlawful termination because of the protected activity, which you know we claimed was mm -hmm. just just basically saying vote for the union, and the NLRB agreed and and overturned his termination and said even though there were profanities um, like the F word and you know saying some pretty egregious things that could even approach th uh, you know threatening nature toward the supervisor, the fact that this included comments about improving working conditions rendered it protected. So you can see how in a non, you know, um, sort of working condition type context, that's something that, you know, pretty clearly would um, put, put an employee in a cat at, at risk of termination or very severe discipline. So what is an employer? Yeah. Doing? Look at this email. What do they do? Yeah. So <laughs> tell so us, Kirsten, what do they do? Yeah. So that sounds terrible that then they yeah. have to work with these people. Yeah. So, I mean, the first thing to do is if, if, if 
there's any employee conduct that even approaches um, you know, some of these red flag issues that I've described as, as uh, an examples of protected concerted activity. If any employee conduct has, has got any of those sort of factors, if it kind of walks like protected activity and quacks like protected activity, build in a pause before doing anything in response that could be a, an adverse employment action. Elevate it to HR. Again, if you're in a non-union workplace and because of this kind of perception that, um, you know, not all employers need to comply with the NLRA, not all managers and supervisors can really readily identify protected activity. So when they see this and it could be fall into that category and it may not, if it's even potentially in the gray area, build it in a pause, elevate to HR, have a conversation with legal if necessary to assess whether, you know, there's a protected element here. If there is, um, and, you know, here clearly, you know, some pretty egregious language was found to be protected. This is a really tough scenario. And frankly, we anticipate this new Biden majority board going back to some of these holdings. Um, but, if, you know, if there is if there is conduct that is truly actionable, um, not, you know, potentially rising to a level of much more egregious that, that could warrant discipline, you want to kind of do what we do in any, you know, employment best practice situation when you're considering discipline, which is looking to make sure that you are uniformly um, in a non-disparate manner, you know, enforcing your policies. Look at whether mm -hmm. other employees um, in a non-protected setting and a non-union organizing setting who've engaged in similar misconduct have similar have also been disciplined in a manner similar to what you're considering for this employee. So you want to have comparator evidence. You want to be able to demonstrate that even if there's protected activity, if other employees have similarly been, uh, you know, uh, faced consequences disciplined. or been disciplined, yeah. you know, you, you, you can demonstrate that, that they would have been even absent the protected activity. So those are the kinds of analyses you want to make sure you're looking at. I always encourage my clients in those situations, conduct a comparator analysis. Find me examples of other employees mm -hmm. in the past who have done the same thing, where they were disciplined in the same manner. That's a great defense to an unfair labor practice charge um, because you know even in the absence, um, you can show that your practice is to discipline in the same manner. So, so that's, that's really important. I think especially because we're getting into a space, we're gonna start to see these cases again. Um, and, and, you know, really, I think making sure, and I, you know, there are a number of things employers can do to kind of prepare themselves for this kind of pendulum swing back into a, a very uh, union friendly or employee friendly uh, labor policy environment. Um, and, you know, I think number one is training your managers and supervisors to understand protected activity. It doesn't take a lot of time. Um, you know, you can run through examples that would really happen in your workplace um, and help employees understand, okay, this might be protected, how to recognize it, knowing when to build in that pause. Um, that's a really, really important element of preparation for this kind of new labor context we're entering. Right. Just to issue spot it, to be able to say yeah. like, hey, wait a minute, there was this Facebook post or there was this comment that this employee made. Let's let's get let's get some advice on it. Exactly. And I always, you know, if, if there's ever a tricky situation that a frontline supervisor or manager of a particular department is facing, 
I, you know, I think the best advice is elevate it to HR because HR has visibility, broad visibility into what's happening all over, you know, whether it's a company or organization, knows what the employer is doing in all areas of, of, the, of the organization. And so they're going to be able to look for those comparators a little more easily and efficiently. Um, and again, you know, individual supervisors may not necessarily be very familiar with these sorts of quandaries. And so elevating it is a really important step. Okay, what else can employers do to prepare for the wave uh, that's about to come? <laughs> well, I always think, and I, I'm certain you encounter this and, and deal with this particular issue quite often in your own practice, but I, I always recommend my clients, again, whether they're union or not, um, to regularly, periodically conduct a thorough legal review of their employee handbook. And the reason mm -hmm. that's it's so important right now because um, it is a prosecutorial priority for this um, this new Biden um, NLRB to actually require any employer who is accused of violating the National Labor Relations Act to provide its entire employee handbook to the investigating region for review for compliance with the NLRA. Now you can imagine in some industries your your employee handbook may be 500 pages of things that. Are, are totally unrelated to maybe the underlying allegations in the charge, right. but but you know this is a this is a pretty aggressive priority of, of this board majority, and so they have a right to say, give me your full handbook. I've had cases where I've defended non-union employers um, that maybe had a, a, a entirely you know, tens of thousands of employees in the U.S., none of whom were union members, but an individual employee maybe filed a, a, a charge saying they were unlawfully retaliated against for engaging in protected concerted activity. Um, the, the region asked for the entire handbook, reviewed the entire handbook, and because there hadn't been a recent uh, legal review for NLRA compliance, more than 50 provisions in the handbook were found to potentially violate the National Labor Relations Act. Now, the underlying allegations went away. There was no merit. But this particular mm. company ended up in years-long litigation, very expensive litigation, um, because they hadn't right, done a, a review, a legal review uh, for NLRA compliance of their handbook, which would have you know, protected them in that instance. Just Really quickly, like what are the penalties under the NLRA? Uh, let's say either for the handbook non-compliance or for terminating somebody that you shouldn't have terminated because they were engaged in protected concerted activity. Are we talking reinstatement, monetary yeah. penalties, jail time? Like what does this look like? Well, this is a really timely question because there's a lot of activity and, and new developments happening um, on this issue right now. Traditionally, uh, the NLRA is, is a, um, a remedial statute as opposed to a punitive statute. So typically, you know, if, if an employer has maintained an unlawful a, a handbook policy or a workplace policy or work rule that's found to have be unlawful under the NLRA, and the reason that would be is because um, the, board, the NLRB would, would uh, interpret that provision as potentially restricting an employee's right to engage in protected activity. So a very simple example of that would be a, a confidentiality policy, right? Under the NLRA, as I mentioned earlier, it's, protect, it's a protected employee right to be able to talk to the, you know, that employee's coworkers uh, um, openly and candidly about their benefits and their wage rates. And so 
you know, to the extent that a, a handbook, uh, an employer's confidentiality policy prohibits an employee from disclosing that kind of employee wage rate information, that would be an unlawful handbook policy. In that instance, it would really be overturning the policy, right, making it compliant. But any employee who was disciplined or had some other adverse employment action uh, because the employer enforced an unlawful policy, that discipline would have to be reversed. So any employee who realized uh, you know, an adverse employment action or a negative consequence because a, a handbook policy was enforced against the employee and later found to be unlawful, that discipline would have to be removed from the employee's file. And if that involved termination, yes, reinstatement with that. Mm. Now, what's, what the interesting development is that uh, a couple of weeks ago, the NLRB's newly appointed um, general counsel announced a really unprecedented move, which is um, that for employers who are found to have... Um, uh, terminated an employee in violation of the NLRA. Um, in addition to the standard kind of reinstatement with back pay, if there's merit found to the allegation, the, the NLRB is now going to pursue kind of second and third order consequences, financial consequences that, that they believe could, could affect the employee by virtue of losing their jobs. Some of those things, believe it or not, um, are uh, the monetization of an employee's um, decrease in their credit rating by virtue of losing their job. So the NLRB has wow. said, now we're going to quantify those things, right? Other, any other things that, you know, if you missed car payments um, and, and that could be blamed on losing your job, NLRB is now looking at much more punitive financial penalties are pretty severe um, by virtue of sort of quantifying those kind of second and third order effects um, that could financially impact an employee who was found to have been unlawfully terminated in violation of the NLRA. Interestingly, um, and to give you sort of a sense of this new labor world we're in, another uh, one of the new penalties that the NLRB is gonna be pursuing is actually a written apology from the employer to the employee. This is really unprecedented, right? I mean, it's just- Yeah, I saw that. That yeah. is so, so different than any of our other employment and labor laws out there. Right, because it's one thing to be told, you, you are out of compliance with a federal statute and you need to get in compliance and here's how you comply. And it's another to sort of admit and acknowledge to that employee and sort of apologize. It's, it's a new wave of, of kind of, you know, this, this labor environment that we're entering, which I think we're going to sort of be surprised in a number of other ways as we move forward as well. I, I think the point is really well put that at some level, it's just going to be a risk analysis of employers feeling like they need to do what's right for their workplace culture and balancing the potential risk that a court will ultimately find that the termination or the discipline was in violation of the National Labor Relations Act. So I, I think that we'll have to keep our eyes on the new NLRB appointments, and we will hopefully get to regroup with you maybe on our next season of Legally Empowered. That would be great. As you can tell, I have a lot of energy to talk about these sorts of things, and I'm really thrilled that, you know, have had the opportunity to have this discussion with you. So definitely book me for next season. <laughs> Kirsten, thank you so much for being here. Uh, your insights are so helpful. I think you raise such an awareness of these issues. And this is really becoming an increasing focus, both culturally and in our court system. So I, I thank you for being here. Thank you.